Hallelujah. Blessed be his name. All right, folks. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, very quickly here. Uh, we ended up last week with the parasha of Re'eh. And we understood that Re'eh had to deal a lot with, uh, of course, experiencing and understanding the, 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 the judgments of Hashem. This week, we're going to pick up with Shoftim. So, you know, putting them together is kind of like experience the Shoftim, experience the judgment. We ended up last week with the what? The commandment of Sukkot. If you notice, the, the verse prior to 1618 ends with uh, going up to Jerusalem and fulfilling the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacle. The fathers, if you notice in Mishneh Torah, which is the repetition of the Torah, he is emphasizing over and over <clears throat> what he desires for his people. If it wasn't that important, folks, he wouldn't continue to elaborate the way he does through the parasha. And notice that he continues to elaborate on what? The Sabbath, keeping the feast, essentially how to approach him for the for, for you know lack of illustration here. How do we approach a holy God? He has given us the instructions and in how to do this. So now we ended up with that and now and, and experiencing that. Now he wants to establish something as well, and that is Shoftim judges. <clears throat> this is all part of the plan of the Almighty One, folks. Very important that we understand this. Uh, because guess what, folks? A kingdom without any rule becomes an anarchy. And this is not what the Father is all about. He wants righteous ruling. He has an order in how he works. And he wants that established. Remember, the things that are bound in heaven are also bound where else? Here on earth. So it's a reflection of what's in the heavenlies. We should be in the business of revealing to the people that reflection. The reflection of what's in heaven, we should be revealing it down here. So how good of a job are we doing? Let's think about that for a minute. You know, how does the body look like today? You know, is that how it looks in the heavenlies? Because if it looks that way, I don't want no part of it. <laughs> That's reality, right? So I think we have a lot of work to do. And, and obviously uh, uh, changing our way of thinking. And of course, molding to the way he wants us to be. So, Shoftim, judges, folks. Deuteronomy 16, 18 opens up by saying, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So let's just start off with understanding uh, the, the meaning, of course, of the word, which says, So let's start with, first of all, Shoftim. Shoftim is from the word Shafat, okay? And it literally means to judge, to govern, to vindicate, to punish, to act as a lawgiver or judge or governor of God or of man. So we see, again, you know, a reflection in the heavenlies and, of course, a reflection in the earth. For, you know, again, lack of illustration, the system that we have today in, in the world, in America, believe it or not, a lot of the root of this stems from Scripture. Because we have to have order. You know, these, are, these things are not man-made because a lot of people get into the whole, well, the laws that we have today and the system is all man-created. Well, maybe some of the laws are, because obviously we're in, you know, we in exile for the land, but I believe the system, when you read Torah, a lot of it stems from here. So, you know, again, this is very, very important. So, Shafat, to judge, govern, vindicate, punish. Again, now if you look at this word, uh, Shafat, Shafotin, Shafotin, I'm sorry, you have the three uh, parent uh, letter here, which is Shafat. And again, when you look at this, the Sheen represents something like a fire. The pay is the lip, and of course you got the teth, which is kind of like a surrounding. So, you know, the fire that comes out of the lips, essentially. You know, when the holy prophets spoke, 
what they, a lot of them, Jeremiah specifically said that he felt that there was a fire coming from with him. This is kind of like what Shafing, the carrying the meaning of Shafing is what come, the fire that comes out of your lips. Why the fire? Because Hashem is a what? A consuming fire. And what comes out of your mouth? The fire. The words of truth. Now, the fire can be a good thing because as those words that are coming out of your mouth, they can obviously consume. And that consuming can be for what? Purification. Or it can be for desolation at all. It can destroy as well. Well, then how do we distinguish it? Well, it really it depends on the people who's receiving it. The message that the people are receiving. For instance, in the time of Jeremiah, this was bad news. Especially for the kings of Israel. Because the words that the prophets spoke, that fire, Shaphat, that fire literally consumed them. Why? Because they didn't have the heart for Hashem. They didn't have a heart of repentance. In other words, folks, we should never, you know, whenever there's correction, especially today, we have a problem with correction. We don't like to be corrected. You know, and, and, and to a degree, I, I guess I can kind of understand that, but understanding it and accepting it is two different things. We need to understand that that's pride in us, that doesn't want to accept the correction. And deal with the pride. Not say, well, it's normal for me to not want to receive correction. Therefore, because it's normal, I don't want to hear it. Rather, we need to address why don't we want to hear the words of correction. You know, and again, it's one thing if somebody's correcting you with false, of course, judgment, then of course our job is to discern it and of course, you know, weigh it out and then be able to relate to the person. No, what you're saying is either not right because X, Y, and Z throughout the rest of Scripture, but in general, folks, each and one of us should be open to receive correction at the end of the day. Because how does a nation grow? How do we grow? Correction. You know, when you went to school, you grew because you were corrected consistently in school. You were taught. You grew. You mature. This is the same way, folks. This is the basically the exact same meaning when we're talking about Shoftim. It's correction for personal growth. Amen. So now let's look at this. Shoftim vesoterim diten lach. Now it says vesoterim. This word there, soterim, is from the Hebrew word uh, satar. Or shoterim, I'm sorry, shatar. And literally means like an official or an officer. So, you know, I call this, as, as Hazal also says, a law enforcement officer. The soterims were pretty much like your law enforcement officers. You have the, the, the judges, the shoters, they're the ones that establish the rulings. And then, of course, within the gates, you will have those who will go around the gates and they were making sure that people were actually following what? The judgments pronounced within the gates. So that's pretty much like your law enforcement officers today. What is their job? Their job is to go around to ensure that people are following the law, essentially. So your soterims are pretty much very similar in, in that aspect. So, the Midrash says, most of the Sidra deals with commandments directed to the leaders of the nation. Now, this is important for us to understand, folks. That this was directly commanded to, or most of them, to the leaders of the nation. Why? Because we don't, don't want to go around now, today, when we leave here today, start going around walking with a Torah stick and beating everybody up. We need to understand that within your gates, and I'm going to cover that in just a minute, has more of a, a personal meaning. But also we need to understand that as a nation, as a whole, it was the job for the judges to do that, not the individual. Okay, and we're going to 
hopefully show you how to discern that and, and make the differentiator in here. So it says, because their conduct, that is the leaders, their conduct has a power and influence on the rest of the people. Is that true? Think about that. If the head is sick, what happens with the rest of the body? Sick as well. So, you know, we can see that very profoundly, even in the years of experience living with corrupt government, right? We can see that our, as our government is corrupt, we see the system being corrupt. Why? Because we're following after the model. You know, if the government is doing this, guess what? I'm just going to go ahead and do the same thing. That's the, that's the purpose of what the Hazal is trying to teach us in here, that the people who have this authority and this power have a lot of influence. So it says either for good or for bad. In addition, the Torah warns very forcefully that decisions of the Sahindra must be obeyed. We read that in, in chapter 17. For God grants his sages the power to interpret the Torah's laws on a day-per-day -day basis. Now, this is very interesting, folks. Um, and again, it, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because, you know, with the sages of Israel, we know that a lot of the rulings were not necessarily scriptural. But we do also need to understand that God has appointed certain leaders to be able to interpret the law. Now, that's no different than today. Has anybody ever picked up a law book here? Okay, well, for some of us, I mean, I have a, I have a degree in criminology. And in and, and my degree in criminology, there were subjects that we have to talk about, case law and tort law and all these different things. And when you pick up one of those books, it's like a foreign language. You don't understand terminologies like discovery, you know, and the discovery of this. What is discovery? You know, I, I mean, all these different uh, legal terminology, then even if you pick up the book to read it, you're like, huh? You're not going to understand it. It's no different than the Torah, believe it or not. Because in the Torah, it uses idioms and guidelines within the Torah that unless you are trained and learned, and what's going to happen? You're going to end up recklessly misinterpreting it. I.e., look at the world today. Everybody's doing it different ways. Why? Because we're all picking up a law book and try to interpret it ourselves. That's dangerous. So to a degree, this is why he set those who were above so that they can interpret the law for the people. Now, what's amazing and beautiful about this is that we do have the written word of God. Something that they didn't have back then. That today we can understand and say, okay, you're saying that based on the commandment of you know, keeping the Sabbath holy, you're saying I can't do X, Y, and Z. We can actually go to scripture and verify that what the interpretation of the teacher is giving is actually valid. So there, you know, that reasoning, again, we do need to have that respect to a degree for those who have been trained to do this. If, now listen to what uh, Hazal says in here. If, if there were to be a breakdown of respect for their interpretation, that is the sages, the downfall of the nation could not be far behind, he says. Such breakdown would lead to anarchy with the Torah being fragmented into many Torahs. That's exactly what's happening today. Because we have lost the respect for the sages of Israel because, you know, you know they deny Jesus, so everything that they say is wrong. Now what's happening is we have literally completely gone downfall. And now we do have the Torah being fragmented, meaning cut into pieces everywhere, and everybody's interpreting it according to their own understanding. That by far, in my opinion, folks, it's more dangerous than actually having the Torah taught in, as a means of a yoke.
I'd rather be under a yoke, seriously, than to be under many different tours where it just drives confusion everywhere. So this is, again, a lot of wisdom for us here today, folks. What the Father is revealing and teaching in here through the opening of this parasha is that we need to have leadership. We need to have order. Without it, folks, look what's happening out there. Very, very important. So let's continue in here. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of what? Confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now it's interesting that this word here in the Greek, confusion, has to, it's actually translated as order. In other words, God is not a God of, you know, disorder rather. So it's saying that he's not a God that's uh, advocating disorder, but rather he's a God that's advocating order. So, where there's order, there's peace. Where there's order, there is no confusion. Contrary to that stands as well. So Deuteronomy, moving on in here. Deuteronomy 16, 18. And you shall appoint judges and officers. Now it says, in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with what? Righteous judgment. And Hebrew says, Titen lach vechol searecha. So let's look at this word. Vechol searecha. That is the word sahar, and it means an opening. That is like a door or a gate. So when it says that you are to judge him, and, and, your, and some of your translation says town, and some of your translation says gates, the meaning for that word literally means like an opening or a door. Guess what? A city also, because it was understood the gates of the city as you enter. But that's not limited to just the city, the gates of the city. You can also have the gates of your own home. This is the purpose behind it. Any opening, the minute you open this door where there is a dwelling place, you are basically commanded to what? To judge within your household. I'm setting up for something very important, folks, in here. Because this opening of your household is not just limited to your household either. For you are also the temple of the living God. In other words, it starts with judging yourself. This is where this Torah portion is going with. That's why we are to judge within our own gates. Now, again, historically and accurately, this is talking about entering the cities. Every city had a gate. You had to go through the gates of the city to enter into the city. They were walled and they were gate. But the sages even took that to a level of your personal homes. Within your personal homes, you have your gates and your doors. You need to make sure that you are judging your household and righteousness. Now, again, this is very important for the leaders of the household because that's the job of the judges of the household. Now, does that mean there's only for men? Well, not necessarily because women also are commanded to judge, believe it or not. Deborah was a judge in Israel, and she was married, by the way. So, again, you have the head of the household who actually gives the authority to the wife to also pass the judgment as well for the family. So this is where we're looking at as far as the port gates and doors. So Nachmanides says, The rabbis have taught, and these things shall be for a statue of judgment unto you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. This teaches that the laws of the Sahedrin are binding both within and without the land. Because many people say, well, we are not in the land, so we cannot do this. We cannot fulfill this Torah. Nachmanides takes this to say, it's not just in the land, you are to do this also outside of the land. Meaning, what Nachmanides, again, I didn't put the whole thing in here because it would be several pages, but
but what Nachmani is teaching is that this judgment that you are to use, you are to take it outside of the land wherever you dwell, essentially. So it's something that you can still apply to today so that you can learn to judge your household in righteousness. How many of us want to do that? Folks, if there's no judgment in the household, what's going to happen with the household? It's going to collapse. It's going to fall. This is why there has to be order in righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, he says? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Apostle Paul is saying is that the ones inside the church is the ones that we need to be judging. Not the ones outside of the church. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Interesting, folks. Because this is something that we read back in here in Shoftim. And even in the book of Exodus, there's a parasha called Mishpatim. Which has to do with actually the judgments as well. Connecting with the judgments and the judges. So whether the assembly, we are to judge one another. Now, let's pause for a minute. Again, because I don't want today people walking out of here with a Torah stick. And beating everybody each other up. The idea of judging, folks, number one, there's two words for judging in the Greek and in the Hebrew. Okay, in the Hebrew, of course, it's shafat, which means to pronounce judgment, but it also can also indicate as well as discerning as well. So you are to judge the fruit of a person within the assembly. Now, if there's correction that needs to be made based on the fruits of the, of, of, of the person, the proper order of doing this, folks, is not for you to call them out in front of a group and beat them up. The proper order of doing that is for you to pull them aside privately and speak in love to them. That's the proper way of doing this because, again, that is part of how we grow. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Okay, I may see Alpha today doing something I think that is wrong completely. So now I'm going to go ahead and approach her and let her know, you know what? What you did in here and aside, what you did was wrong. You know, this is not really the fruit of the Spirit. This is kind of like the correction I want to kind of give you and extend it to your love. Now, here's what's interesting about me making that correction. In the midst of this correction, I might actually learn something myself. Because I may be pronouncing a judgment that is not valid. And now Alpha can actually rebuttal and say, well, what I did was X, Y, and Z based on ABC. That the Torah commands and da-da-da-da. I may now see it in a different light. What's happening in this dialogue in here is that we are actually growing. Because now I learned something new from her, or maybe I didn't. Maybe she did need it to change. But the idea behind it is that we are doing this privately. I'm not going around beating her up. I'm not going around calling out in front of the public to correct her. These are the things that we need to understand when we handle these things. Within the assembly, folks. This is very, very important. And for her, she has to have the heart to receive it. Because if I pull her aside and let her know, listen, this is kind of what I've been noticing. And again, we have to pray for a lot of these things. But this is kind of like what I've been noticing for the last six weeks. <laughs> you know, it's not something you just did now. And I'm going to tackle you right away. You know, pull a fast one and pull the trigger. I kind of had a twitch when I said that. But anyways, so we're not going to do that, right? So the idea is that we're going to wait and this becomes a what? A habit, right? 
a habitual thing that we've seen of her, now we go ahead and call our sign and say, you know, this is kind of like I've been noticing. That's the idea behind this. And judging one another within the assembly, folks, it's not for us to go beating around each other. So please understand the difference because the idea of verse 13 says that we are to purge the evil. In order for us to grow as a church, as an assembly, remember, with your, your judgment needs to be based on what? Righteousness. So if Alpha has a desire, assuming that she has a desire and a heart for the Lord, and she wants to grow, and she wants to do what is right, the message that I'm going to give her should be appreciated. See, this it's really amazing when you really put this to practice because it tests both person. It tests for number one, the haughtiness of one party, but actually the haughtiness of both parties. Because how the person is going to come and come back, it can also be in a very prideful way as well. So it really puts a lot of these things in practices. And, you know, how do we get better at what we do? By practicing, practicing, practicing. And this is kind of like the whole purpose we're shifting to get us to grow as an assembly. Moving on here, Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Very important. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Now, again, on a simple shot level from the scriptures, this is very, very easy to understand because we see this, unfortunately, in our legal system in America today, and not just America, worldwide. How much corruption there is in the court systems today. Lots of it. You know, and, and this is one of the things that the Father says not to do. But look, for, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. In Hebrew it says, Ki hashochat ye'arer enei ha'achamim. So it's talking about the ha'shochat. And shochat means to give a present, like a donation. Offer gifts. You know, this is, unfortunately, it says that by doing this, it says, Yaver a name. Yaver is the Hebrew word, Yaver, Yaver. And it means literally a, a, like a veil that comes over your eyes. You know, and we see this a lot within the churches. We see this a lot within a lot of organizations within religion and outside of religion, folks. You know, hey, you give me 50 million reasons not to care. That's the whole thing. We need to be careful on when we receive things. And the same way for those who are giving. We need to make sure that our motives that we're giving are not so that we can receive favoritism. Rather, we're giving because it is the righteous things to do and we're being obedient to the word of God. So it works both ways because the only reason why this happens, typically, why is it that it blinds, by the way, it says in here, Ha Kamim, that is talking about the wise men. Why does it blind the eyes of the wise men? Because the intention of the donor or the one who is giving is to blind you. It is a familiar spirit, believe it or not. In other words, they, they, it's, a, it's a spirit that recognizes that I can buy you. And I want it my way and I'm going to manipulate to get it my way because, again, I call you out. You need to be very careful. Again, it's both, both ways. It goes both ways. So let's look at this in here. 2 Peter 2.14 says, They have eyes full of uh, adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. 
Notice what he says in there. They entice what? Unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the gain of what? Unrighteousness, wrongdoing. So this again, uh, Second Peter kind of testifies for this commandment in here when it talks about blinding the eyes of the wise. But how does that happen? It's because they're already unstable to begin with. Their soul is unstable to begin with. The greed is already within their hearts. So again, we always have to be in that process of discernment, folks. Checking one another, our motives. I always keep saying, folks, Torah is extends beyond the assembly. It is for you to be using it every day on your business dealings, on a personal level, at an employee, employer level, on every aspect, relationships, everything. Torah is to be applied for every aspect of our lives. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, Justice and only justice, he says, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Interesting how this reads in Hebrew. In Hebrew it says, Zedek, Zedek. Zedek, Zedek, Tirdof, Lema'an, it says in here, Tichyeh. Beirat et ha'eret says in here. So let's look at this. Zedek, Zedek. Why does it say Zedek, Zedek in the scriptures? Why repeat it? Isn't once good enough to hear? Or is Hashem stuttering through His word? He's not stuttering through His word. But before we get into the Zedek, Zedek, it says Zedek, Zedek, Tirof. What is Tirof? It means to aim, to secure, to follow after. We are to follow after what? Righteousness. We are to secure. We are to aim to secure righteousness. We are to pursue after righteousness. We are to run after righteousness, folks. Get the point, what it's trying to tell us? It's not really something that he's taking lightly. He wants us to literally aim. Now, this aim, I love this first definition of aim to secure. Why aim to secure? Because what is Torah? The root word means to aim for something. Interesting. You're aiming to secure righteousness. That's the idea, folks. You see? Look. Let's see what our beloved sages have to say about this. And the Midrash says this. One should pursue justice. Okay? Only through how? Justice. In other words, we don't pursue justice through unrighteous manner. I'm not going to say because I want to accomplish this, I'm going to take you out. Defeats the purpose. Whatever we do, folks, we need to use justice to accomplish justice. Now, that may take a minute to think about depending on the situation that you're in. What you're dealing with in here. And we need to be able to look at all angles and make sure that whatever we're doing, it is righteous at the end of the day. Even though in some cases it may not, might not appear to be righteous. Look. It is not enough, listen to what the Midrash says in here, it is not enough to seek justice, it must be done through honest means. The Torah does not condone the pursuit of a holy end, meaning a goal, through improper means, essentially. Very, very interesting. John 7.24, Yeshua said this, Do not judge by appearances, 
but judge with what? With right judgment. It's interesting that even Yeshua in here says that you are to judge. He says when you judge, judge with righteous judgment. Do you think? Where did he get that from? Torah. This parasha of the judges. Who was he addressing to here? He was addressing to the Pharisees and the leaders. He was saying if you're going to judge, don't judge by appearances. But judge with righteous standards at the end of the day. Look, Nachmanides says this. Now, I love the way Nachmanides takes this verse to a whole different level now. Concerning Zedek Zedek. Okay? You are to pursue righteousness and righteousness. They said justice. This is his attribute of justice in the world. As it is said, justice, justice shall thou pursue. After that, it is written that you may live it and inherit the land. Okay? If now his interpretation for this verse is the following. He says, if you would judge yourself, knowing whence you came, where you going, and before whom you are giving account, and reckoning, you will live. In other words, Nachmari is saying that in order to inherit the land and do all these different things, is that we need to judge ourselves first. See, this is not a New Testament concept, family. This is a very Torah foundation concept. Judge yourself first before you go judging others. And remember, when we're talking about judging, when we're talking about judging, we're not talking about, you know what? You are going to go to the pits of hell. I just know it. That's now pronouncing a what? A sentence. Which, by the way, that's part of judging. That's part of judging. But the Father has instructed us through the Brihadashah that we are not to judge in that way. We are to judge discerning people, not condemning people. So Yeshua is actually, uh, Nachmanides in here, is actually clarifying that, showing that the first thing that we need to do is judge ourselves. Know where we came from, know where we're going, but most importantly, who we're going to give an account to. That's very, very important before we start pronouncing out and saying to somebody, uh, you are wrong. It says, if not, meaning if you don't judge yourself first, look what he says, if not, he will judge you and affirm his judgment over you against your will. Does that sound familiar to you, what Nachmanides wrote in here? I mean, keep in mind that Nachmanides didn't read the New Testament. Okay? So let's look at this. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 says, Judge not that you may not be judged. Now we can put that verse in the proper context. Let's continue. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Yeshua is literally affirming what Nachmanides is teaching. That you need to judge yourself first before you judge your brother. Notice in here, in verse 2, it gives us the answer for verse 1. But immediately, most of us says, judge not. So now we're not going to speak a word. Because I don't want to judge. Put it in context, folks. Judge not, meaning judge not your brother unless you judge yourself first. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured into you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes? But do not notice the lock that is in your eye. This is basically what Nachmanides is teaching. 
concerning the shofting and the judgments, we need to make sure that if we're going to start correcting people in a certain area, make sure that we're clear in that area first. Just saying. Because, again, it's not a proper thing to do according to scriptures. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? And how many times do we see that within brothers and sisters? You know what? You have a major issue. Let me help you. You got an anger issue. Just five minutes, you know, you, you're correcting your brother. You got an anger issue. But yesterday, you yourself went rage. How is that beneficial for your brother? How are you going to come to tell your brother, okay, I'm going to help you with your anger problem. But yet, you're the angriest human being ever alive. You see? Judge yourself first. If you want to see your brother that's angry, maybe that's a reflection that you need to work on yourself. Maybe you're an angry person and you need to deal with your anger and then go later on and try to help your brother to anger. Or better yet, instead of trying to help your brother with an anger, because you have an anger problem yourself, tell your brother, you know, you need to go to that person to help you with your anger instead of you trying to fix the problem. Look. You hypocrite, he says, take, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clear to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That makes perfect sense. Because you see, when you have a stronghold, how can you deliver somebody from a stronghold? Because your own stronghold are going to keep you blind. How can you deliver them when you yourself have the same problem? It's the question. Something to really... Now, the purpose for this, folks, is to show you that what Yeshua is teaching in here is actually found in Judaism. Nachmanadi had talked about it concerning the judgments. And we see that clearly in the Torah as well. Look, moving on, Nachmanadi says, and what is the second justice? Because he's saying that the first justice, Zedek, Zedek, the first one has to do with judging yourself. What is the second one? Look what he says in here. And what is the second justice? It is that which frightens the righteous, he says making them fearful that perhaps they do not merit the world to come. And there, in the Midrash, it is further explained, justice is the helmet of salvation upon his head. Right? The head denotes only truth, he says. And it is said, the beginning of thy word is truth, and truth is what? Shalom, peace. So he said that now the second justice attributes with the fear of being what? Judge yourself. If so, scripture is stating here, you are to judge in your court. Essentially, you are to judge in your court to attain justice and pursue therein justice and try to achieve it that thou mightest live in the world to come with the second justice. Now, what is the second justice that he is talking about? It says in here, which alludes to him with a capital H, by the way. The second justice alludes to him who is higher justice. This being the great light. Listen to what Nachmari says. This is really, really amazing. He says, this is the great hidden light for the righteous for the time to come. And this is also the might of the Holy One, blessed be he. It's talking about the Mashiach. He's saying that this second justice, the purpose for this first justice, why it says Zedek Zedek, the first one is that we are to judge ourselves first before we correct others. And in attaining that, we will, we will spend our eternity with the second justice. 
which is the light that is hidden from the righteous right now. Or rather hidden for the righteous. For a time yet to come, he says. Because he is the ultimate justice. He is the ultimate judge. Amen. This is beautiful. I mean, in my opinion, it's beautiful. Look, Revelation 24 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, nor had received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with who? With Messiah for a thousand years. This is kind of like what Nachmanides it's writing about in here. That the second one is the one who is the, the highest justice. And this is being for the great light hidden for the righteous. In other words, we are going to reign with him. Assuming that we practice the first justice. That is, we're judging ourselves first, and we're judging people accordingly. Very, very, very amazing revelation, in my opinion. So, one of the first concepts that the Torah addresses concerning judgment is what? Starting with judging ourselves, folks. It's looking into the mirror and seeing that reflection within ourselves. Now, that's probably one of the hardest things, believe it or not. It's very easy to point the sin to your brother... That part is easy, but it's very hard when we have to look at ourselves and point the sin within ourselves. But he said in doing this, and in doing this, we will achieve the second, the second justice. I submit today that we all seek for that second justice, that Zedek, so that we can live and be with him. Deuteronomy 17.1 says, You shall not sacrifice with that in mind now, understanding that we are to judge ourselves first. Okay, keep that in mind. Because we, we enter into chapter 17 with the understanding of that. And the first thing that chapter 17 opens up with is this. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which it is a blemish, it says. Any defect, whatever, for that is a what? An abomination to the Lord your God, it says in here. So let's read this in Hebrew. It says, Lo tizbach sur Asher bohmu, it says. Now let's look at this. Lo tisbach le Yehovah. Hershuma says this. Lo tisbach, that is zabach, which means to sacrifice, okay? Hersh says this. Lo tisbach means is the conclusion of what has gone before. In the preceding chapter, it says that the devotion to our duties, as symbolically expressed by God's altar, it's the foundation of our physical and political welfare. Here, scripture adds that this devotion must encompass the whole of our being. In other words, when judging now, we need to judge our whole being, everything, our motives, our heart, our spirit, our desires. Everything needs to be judged accordingly. And that it must accord in every respect with the way that it is acceptable in God's sight. In other words, even the sacrifices that we bring, folks, granted, we're not bringing sheep and ox and all these things today, but we are bringing our service to the Lord. We are bringing our offerings. We are bringing our tithings. We are bringing our, our devotion on our hands and whatever aspect we can devote to Him. He's saying that even all these things need to be judged through the Zedek Zedek, through righteous motives. Look. Nothing may be missing in the offering animal that is meant to symbolize our own surrender to God. In other words, 
whenever we give something to the Lord, whether it be monetary units or whether it be service to Him, it needs to be something that we are surrendering it all to Him completely. And this pure expression of our devotion to duty must not be tainted, it says, by any of the disqualifications mentioned in Vayikra, essentially. So this disqualification in Vayikra, we're not going to get into that today, but it's talking about the offerings that we bring. Are we bringing in with a sincere heart? Are we bringing in with the motives to receive something back? Are we giving in with the motives to be recognized? The list goes on and on. All this, it's part of a defect of your animal. I lost you there. That's okay. We'll come this to Vayikra when we visit it. All these, all these offerings, the defects and the offerings in the animal, have to do when you give where the condition of your heart is. Because if it's good, then it, the, the animal, there's no defect in the animal. Likewise was the same when they offer for the animals. They could have brought a perfect animal, and I'm going to show you proof of that when we get to Vayikra. They could have brought a perfect animal, and the Lord still would not receive it. Even though the animal has no physical defect. But there was a spiritual defect in the what? The one who was offering it. This is what we're talking about in here that Hirsch obviously is commanding when we actually give everything to the Lord. James 1.23 says, if, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a what? Doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. And then what happens? For he looks at himself and then what? Goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is the aspect of judging within ourselves, folks. Continue back with that. What you're looking in the mirror, what you're seeing, are you being forgetful? In other words, don't just be a hearer of the law. Don't come to the synagogue just to come and hear the Torah and say, well, I did my duty already. I, I rested on Shabbat. I was in the synagogue. You, you, did, you, did you follow that? Did you take roll call? I was there, right? It's not about that, folks. It's about the intent. This, this addresses something by far, folks, much deeper. And I know this is hard, but it's something that needs to be dealt with because it's better that I teach it to you than to the king to address it to you. Okay? Trust me. A lot better coming from my mouth than his mouth. So the idea is that we want to, again, address the inner man before we start doing the outer work. So let's not be hearers of the word. Let's be what? Doers of the word. That's action. That's physically. That's, uh, again, spirit. That's heart. We need to be constantly doing. Look, Malachi 1, 6, 8 says, A son honors his father, right? And a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, he says. Right? And if I am a master, where is my fear, he says. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. Now, who is he addressing? The priests. What was the job of the priests? To teach, to instruct, and to atone on behalf of Israel as well. Who, what? Despise my name. Now, it begs the question through the prophet of Malachi, how can the Levites, the priests, the Kohen, despise his name? Think about that. If I were to tell you today the priest despised the name of Hashem, that would be a shocker for most of us. How can that be? The priests were always sacrificing in the temple and doing the duties that Hashem commanded. So, 
One begs the question, today I want to ask each and one of you, how do we despise the name of Hashem? It begs the question. These are questions that it's presented in here, and I think, in my humble opinion, it requires further looking into because we don't want to be caught judged by saying that we despise His name. True? I mean, that's a bad judgment. So how do we despise His name? Let's see, it says in here, you priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Notice how they're asking the question. The priest is asking the question, how do we despise your name? This way, the way this is written in Hebrew, is, is written in a form of, of awe, so to speak. Like, they're like, huh? How is it that we despise your name? If somebody came to you today and said, you despise the name of Hashem, wouldn't you be shocked? You'd be like, how is it that I'm despising his name? Well, they're asking the same question. Let's see the answer. By offering polluted food upon my altar, he says. But you say, how have we polluted you? So begs the question. I love this because it's sincere questions. The first thing that he addresses is, you despise my name because you're what? Bringing polluted food into my altar. Now we understand that this whole polluted food with the altar, yes, why it may, it may have possibly talking about animals that had literally defects, but it's also addressing, I think, something much greater than the animal defect. It's addressing the worshiper who's actually bringing in the animal. <laughs> right? So let's continue here. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be what? Despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, he says. Folks, I'm going to submit something to you. We really need to pay attention to this verse right here. Because, you see, we live in a reality today that we kind of like to give God our scraps. I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it the way it is. We give him scraps. When it comes for our personal stuff, oh, we look for the best. The best of the best. Because, you know, I'm going to live in it. Oh, it's going to be mine. I'm going to own it. So the best of the best. But when it comes for God, well, let's just find the cheapest stuff that we got out there. We need to address our hearts. You see, David would not even offer anything that was given to him for free to the Lord. Now, David was known as what? As a man after God's own heart. David would not. They even gave him the offering so that he can present it before the Lord. And he said, how dare do I present an offering that didn't cost me anything, he says. We need to be very careful. Judging, okay, goes back to judgment. Judge your hearts and your intents. Are we giving the Lord our all? Are we giving him the scraps? You know, and that's so easy to do in today's economy because everybody's tight. And I understand that. We all are. But we need to be careful, folks. When it comes to the things of the Lord, don't bargain with the things of God. Don't bargain with the things of the Lord. Give him the best of the best at the end of the day, and he will give you honor for that. And guess what? Your little financial situation might actually get resolved. <laughs> you know, instead of nickel and diamond and giving him literally scraps. 
It's something, folks, that again, we need to address our hearts. If we're thinking this way, guess what? Under Torah or under the scripture itself, we're despising his name. Whether you like it or not, that's the title that he's going to give you. You can argue with him all day long. All day long, you can argue with him. It ain't going to change the fact that this is the way he looks at it. And it's not the way you view it, it's the way he sees it. Who's the judge? You or him? Present that to your governor. I love the way he presents this. In other words, you giving me this scraps, go give that to somebody who you honor here on earth. You know, somebody you really look up to and you honor greatly. You can think of the best person right now that you can give honor as a human being. Who would that be? Will you give him with the intent of your heart? Will you do the same for that person? That's why he says, present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? All this connects, folks, with shifting, being judge, judging within ourselves and our intent. You see, folks, if we put this to practice, and you know what's amazing about this is you don't have to share this with your neighbor. And you definitely don't have to share this with me. I'm not interested. You need to share this with yourself. I'm presenting it so that you can test yourselves about it. Because that's the purpose of this. It's not for you to share with your neighbor, unless you want to. It's not for you to bring it up in here, confess it to the congregation, or to even talk to me about it. It's for you to deal with yourself. Go look in the mirror and test your intents on everything that you do. Amen? So now we're going to conclude with what? The relationship between the king and the Torah of Hashem, folks. Now this kind of connects what we've been talking about up to now, because we've been talking about judgment We've been talking about discerning. We've been talking about correcting, starting within ourselves first, and then what? Trickling that to everybody else. And now we're going to see how the Torah shifts to the Torah of the king. Why is that important? Because Rashaul, Apostle Pes says, follow or imitate me as I what? Imitate Messiah. That's the connection of judging yourselves first, right? And... The character of the king. Let's see what is the connection in here. Deuteronomy 17, 14, 20 says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay. And you possess it and dwell in it. And then say, I will set a king over me. Like all the nations that are around me. Now where is the error there? Is it the fact that they wanted a king? Or is it the fact that they're saying, like the nations all around me? Keep that in mind. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will what? Choose. It is God who chooses, not the people, folks. Okay? One, now here's the qualifications for a king. This is important. One from among your brothers. It has to be one from among your brothers. You shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now understand, we're not just talking about bloodline, folks. We're not just talking bloodline here. What is scripture defines as a brother? What is scripture defines as your neighbor? Better yet. You guys remember the parable with the, the, the Samaritan who was on the uh, down and out, beaten to death, and the priest walked by, and then what happened? A Samaritan actually stopped. And what was the teaching in that, in that parable? Who is your neighbor? Who was a good neighbor at that day? Or basically, who was a neighbor to him? 
the Samaritan was a neighbor to him. It's defined there for you, folks. We don't have to, again, try to formulate things in here. So a brother and one who is a brother, not to put a foreigner, is one who is outside of what? Covenant. You can have a blood brother, you can have a blood person who is still a foreigner under the eyes of Hashem, if that makes any sense. So let's not get too tied up with bloodline here. We're talking about a brother within the faith. He's saying the king needs to be one who is of the same faith of you, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Let's continue here. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, he says, or cause the people to return to Egypt. That's a big one. In order to acquire more horses. Well, that's kind of like our government system. You know, you work more so that they can have more money. That's literally what it's saying. Look what it says. Cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. That's the idea. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, he says. He delivered us once, folks, so that we never go back to that. And he shall not acquire many wives, it says, for himself, lest his heart turn away, it says. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive what? Silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Now, this is very important, folks. Because most of everybody out there, whether you're a Protestant movement, whether you're a Catholic, doesn't matter who you are, will agree that Jesus is king. I, don't, I, I have never heard anybody saying anything contrary to that, for the most part. We, we, I think we are on the, on the same page with that. Both Messianic, Christians, you name it. Everybody's on the same page. Jesus is king. He's coming back as a conquering king. But what they don't realize is that that terminology, a king, is an idiom for what we're going to learn here today. When you say that Jesus is king, what are you acknowledging? Do you know that you're acknowledging something besides him being a ruler? We're going to learn this through the Torah today. Look, it says, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. What is he reading? Time magazine? No. He's reading the Torah all the days of his life that he may learn to what? Fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, it says, and these statutes and doing them, it says. Look, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. I don't know if you're catching that. In other words, he's saying that the king needs to study the Torah so that he's not above the brothers. Why? Because the king is not above the law. Look. And that he may turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. So look. And when he sits down on his throne in his kingdom, he shall write a copy for himself. Let's look at that in the Hebrew. It's very amazing how this reads. And when he sits on his throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, it says. In Hebrew it says, Behaya, right? Says, Keshivto. That is from the word Shafta, to sit down. Al Sifeh, it says, Mamlachto, 
וכתב לו את משני התורה הזאת. It's saying in here, כבת, I'm sorry, כתב. כתב means to inscribe something, not just write it, because when you write something, you can erase it. But when you inscribe something, you cannot erase it. כתב literally means not to write, to inscribe something. So he says, וכתב לו את משנה התורה. You are to inscribe this משנה, this second copy. It literally means like a copy. It says of this Torah. Now, let's move on in here. What's interesting in here that it says, וכתב לו את, who is the משנה התורה וזאת? This copy of the וזאת התורה goes to who? To the Aleph Taf. Yeshua. Yeshua is the Aleph and the Taf. Prophetically speaking of the Messianic age, when the Messiah, when he returns and claims uh, the kingdom and sits on the throne in Israel, the first order of business that the Messiah is going to do is have a copy of the Torah. How does that fit a lawless Messiah? Think about that. So let me get this straight. The Torah existed once upon a time. Jesus did away with it, but then he's going to reinstate it. Really? No. See, I think the problem is our translation and how we interpret the word of God. The Torah always will be. Always has been and always will be because it is through the Torah that the foundations of the earth were created, folks. The Aleph Ta is the one who's going to have the Mishneh HaTorah. It's Zot. Look. Hirsch Humash says this. You're going to, this Humash, uh, uh, Rabbi Hirsch in here, presents something that blew my mind when I read it. Concerning the Aleph Ta. Look. It says, immediately upon ascending his royal throne. He's talking about the king here. His first act shall be to write out for himself with his own hand a copy of the Torah. By this act, he acknowledges, the king acknowledges, that the law was given to him before all others. That he is not above the law. But rather, the law must be the immutable guideline for all his life. And his whole mission, that is the king's mission, his whole mission as king is to ensure, listen to this, the fulfillment of the law. <laughs> the mission of the king is to ensure that the people fulfill the law. That's why we've been addressing so much about not observing the law, but rather what? Fulfilling the law. Matthew 5.17 says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? Why did he say that? Why did Yeshua say, I come to fulfill? Because one of the duties of the king is to fulfill it. So that the people can fulfill it. Look. In his faithfulness, he says, and here, moving on. In devotion to the task assigned by the Torah, it says, He shall be the foremost. Now listen to this. He shall be the foremost son of the Torah. This is amazing. He is, it's talking about the Bene, the son. What was your, one of the titles for Yeshua? Son of Elohim. 
So he shall be the foremost son of the Torah, which, by the way, what that means, son of the Torah, it means that he is a builder, because what is the job of the son? A banaf, which is translated as a son in Hebrew, carries the understanding of the builder of the family. So when it says son of the Torah, that's an idiom for building the Torah, building the family based on Torah. Because, you know, let's think about it. A Torah cannot have really son. It's not a human being, per se. So it's a piece of paper. This is an idiom. The builder of the Torah. So it's saying in here again, that he will be the son of the Torah, and through his actions he will provide, listen to this, through his actions, not through his words, through his actions, he will provide a personal example to his people. The job of the king is to lead by example. What is the job of the shofim? To lead by example. What is the standard that the king is going to use? Torah. What is the example that the Torah teaches us about the shoftim? Torah. You making the connection here? Everything in the standard is Torah. The king has to follow Torah just like the subjects which is his people, they are to follow Torah. To present himself the king cannot be above the people or the law, for that matter. Look, this is the reason Yeshua said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish him, but what? To fulfill them as the, as the king that he is. Look, Hershumar says this, and I love this. This is amazing because, I mean, again, how they make this connection, it blows my mind, concerning the Shoftim, the judges, and how in the judges we learn about the king. Interesting, because what does a king do? He judges. He pronounces judgment as well. So look, this king, he says, God dedicated to be the royal root of a line of descendants reaching unto the ends of days, he says. And a coming generation which will realize God's Torah completely. Hirsch is saying that a time is going to come where the entire world will know about God's Torah. Every single body. That doesn't mean that they're going to be doing it, but the awareness is going to be there. So it says uh, that which will realize God's Torah completely will also bring the king the pure realization of the Torah king in Israel. This future king, he's saying, this future king will bring about the fulfillment of this reality and God's spirit will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, a, a, of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. By the word of his mouth, he will rule the earth. And because of his spirit, because of his spirit, lawlessness will die away. Woo! That's all I have to say. Because of his spirit, his presence, lawlessness, that means without Torah, will die, folks. How dare we say that this king is lawless? Or even attribute him to something lawless? Folks, we need to understand that without Torah, there's nothing. See, Torah is not a suggestion. That's the problem with the Messianic movement today. Is that we think Torah is just another suggestion to come to God. 
you know, kind of like every denomination has its own rulings. Well, we got Torah, another ruling. It's not. It is everything. It is truth. It is image. It is the way. It is the life. It is the way to the Father. Because isn't Yeshua the word? He will empower. Now it says in here, because of his spirit, lawlessness will die away. He will empower justness and faithfulness to such a degree that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the tiger will lie with the kid and on the earth, which aspires to the mount of God's sanctuary. No evil or wrongdoing will be found. Does that sound familiar? Think about this. They attribute in this to the righteous king. See, I think all of us in our heart desire answers for the world today. We want answers for a broken world. But how many of us cannot or rather not see that the only answer to a broken world is Torah? That's the only answer, folks. I don't care what other method you try to find. Outside of God's righteousness, which is this Torah, there is no solution. All we're going to do is continue going in the cycle of what? Curses. 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 The only way to break out of those curses, folks, is to step outside and walk in obedience to His Word. The earth will be restored. Lawlessness will die. Because of God's righteousness. Amen? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, he says. Hirsch continues saying this. Now reminding you folks that this is not a messianic teacher. This is not a messianic teacher. Most of the sages of Israel were not Yeshua believers, so to speak. A lot of them came before Yeshua, so they didn't know. This is just them speaking of the knowledge what the Torah says. The problem is that the Torah points to Yeshua. That's the amazing thing about this. Look what he says in here. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters covers the sea. This future king will realize the ideal of the Torah king. He will emerge like a shoot from the stock of Jesse which had apparently been cut down long ago. Boy, is that ever true. The fallen tabernacle of David, he's saying. Now listen to this in here. He says, which apparently had been cut off long ago, and like a long-awaited twig, he will sprout from its roots, which were hidden by darkness. This is why it's important to understand the sages of Israel, folks, because whether you realize it or not, they have more insights in what the true Messiah is. This is why it's so important. The Torah reveals this, folks. At the end of the day, the Torah reveals this. But look, John 1.49 says, now connecting this with Yeshua, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are who? the king of Israel. How can he be pronounced the king of Israel if he doesn't qualify as a king? One of the first things for a king of Israel, according to this Torah, is that he has to have a copy of the law and he needs to lead by example for others to see. Why is this important? Why I'm teaching you this, folks? 
Because whenever you run into people in your town, when you go into town, and they start speaking heresy about Jesus abolishing the law, you can present as a scholar and refute the question without getting angry. But rather, present it at an intelligent level and tell them, well, if it is true what you're saying, how does he qualify as a kingdom? So I guarantee you they won't be able to answer it. Look. John 19.15 says, They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answer, We have no king but Caesar. What is the Torah says? That when you set a king over you, he is not to be a foreigner. Right here we're seeing the mistake of what they did, folks. They acknowledge a foreigner over a king, over a king who was actually Zadik, who was righteous. Now, you may sit here and say, yeah, what a bunch of fools. But let me ask you a question. Are you doing the same thing today? Who are you pronouncing as a king? A lawless one? Or a lawful one? Because... When I talk about a lawless one, that's a foreigner, by the way. So are we making Jesus a foreign king, or are we making him the true lawful king of Israel? That question right here begs the question today. It still echoes today, folks. Who is your king? What king have you established over your life? It's still the same thing, folks. Are you establishing a foreign one or are you establishing the lawful one? Very, very important. And we're going to end with this, folks. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he what? Judges. How does he, how does he judge in righteousness? Because this Torah portion teaches us that when we judge, Zedek, Zedek, our judgment needs to be in righteousness. That's why Revelation 19 says that when he comes down, he is going to judge and he's going to be in righteousness and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diamonds. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So stop fighting over how to pronounce his name. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure. What is that saying? The priesthood, folks. The priesthood wore white linen and they were pure. What does that mean? Righteousness, obedience. We're following him on white horses, folks. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will thread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, folks. This awaited day is coming when the true King of Israel will come to rule. But in order for us to come with him, because, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed in, in, in history, your kings will go out to battle. Who led the army? The king. The subjects will go behind him in horses. If we're going to be fighting, folks, what are we fighting for? Because, you know, I can tell you what they're fighting for here. They're fighting for Zadik. 
They're fighting for righteousness. Who are the ones that are coming with him? The ones wearing the white linen, pure folks. And how do we wear? How do we earn? Because you earn it, folks. You earn those robes, whether you realize it or not. You have to walk in order to earn those robes. Don't think for one minute that you make a confession and automatically your white robes are put on you. That is fomenting nonsense. You earn that. You walk it. That's why it says, faithful servant. When you're going to come in, what is the worst that the Messiah is going to say to you? He's going to actually, what? Applause you for what you have done, for walking. And he said, you, you earn it. It is yours now. The kingdom, it's yours. It's been prepared for you from the beginning of time. Shoftim teaches us, folks, that we are to judge our deeds first and foremost and examine ourselves so that we may follow the example of the king of Israel. And what is that example? Obedience to his Torah. So I want to charge every one of you today that we live not by the precepts of lawlessness that man has instituted for us, that rather we will live by the precepts that the almighty God of Israel has instituted us so that we may, as the Torah says, that we may inherit the land and that we may dwell with the king. Amen? We're doing the half Torah that is based on the Torahs of Consolation. It's the, one of the seven Torahs that we are actually still doing between the Tishbiyav and Rosh Hashanah. This is number four. And it is very important to hear the words. Now, how do we connect that to Shoftim and how is that connected? Well, we learned today that we are going, the king of Torah is coming and behind him are going to be those who are wearing the white robes. And we also learned today that the white robes are only those who earned the white robes by your deeds, by your works. So this half Torah, people are crying because they feel that God has abandoned them. I feel the wind. Because God has abandoned them. Now Chabad tells us, Chabad.org, this is where I got the, the synopsis of the half Torah. And it says that the people are complaining that Hashem has abandoned them not, and they were not content with the words of the prophet and that they were demanding that Hashem himself be the one to console them, which is why the half Torah starts with, I, I indeed, I will comfort you. Uh, it says, after briefly re uh, reprimanding, uh, you know, scolding, Israel for forgetting their creator for a fear of human and finite oppressors, the prophet describes the suffering and tribulation which Israel has endured. However, the time has arrived for the suffering to end. So we see that this prophecy is more of a be, remove the tears, be happy. You are in the middle of oppression, but do not fear men because men have not, do not have the final world. word. They are made of grass. I will destroy them. And we see that in the next chapter, we have Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 talks about with the redemption of Israel. It is the, the chapter of Messiah. And he says that he will come to set the captives free as the son of Adam. And that is we do see in the, the previous chapters. But we're going to go a little bit deeper into what uh, Isaiah 52 and 50, 51 and 52 are actually elaborating on. But we're not going to be talking about the, what they did wrong. So God is consoling but also reminding them that their behavior caused them their distress and their imprisonment because of their lack of deeds 
because of their men's tradition being applied as opposed to being the Torah of God, perverting judgment, etc., etc. But we're not going to be talking about that message today. We're actually going to be talking about the men and women who are going to be earning the white robes and what their job is on earth to console the nation of Israel who because of their idolatry and their back turning and their backsliding has brought them into uh, slavery. Uh, even today, the, the, the nation of Israel is desolate. They are they're lost. They haven't been completely restored because they're lacking their Mashiach. They're lacking their, their Messiah. But at this in this uh, half Torah, we actually see the promise of what is to come. So before the king comes through the clouds and the army is behind them, we still have to work for our white robes. And we're going to see what that looks like. So the message is, bless the one who goes in peace proclaiming the salvation of Hashem to Zion. 52.7 how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him, proclaiming good news, making peace heard, bearing tidings of good, making heard salvation, which is Yeshua, saying to Zion, your Elohim reigns. That is our job, that is our duty, that is our calling. As we walk our halakha, as we are doing, walking out our salvation in fear and trembling, our job is to do so in peace, proclaiming the good news. Proclaiming the righteousness of God. Proclaiming His deeds, His right rulings, how He is going to bring salvation and sing it with praise and thanksgiving and joy. So that is the job of the one who is earning the, right, the white robes. So the message. And also reminding that one, the one who's earning the white robe, that I, I am He comforting you. Who are you that you should fear from man and he shall die? And from the Son of Man he is given as grass. Why do we also need to be comforted? Because what looks like on earth, my, what looks like in heaven, what happened to Job? God praised Job because he was a faithful servant. What did that look like on earth? Boils, loss of property, the death of children. That's what it looked like on earth. But in the heavens, he was praising Job for being such a passionate, uh, faithful, righteous servant. So here we have, we are charged not to fear men and to go and proclaim the good news and make peace heard, bear tidings of good, and make heard salvation, saying, Hashem reigns. So what does that come with? That comes with persecution. That comes with dying on the cross, our own cross that we have to bear. That comes with being rejected and refused. That comes with, you are a legalistic person that you only want to follow the, those words of Moses. It comes with the negative attacks. So we know that the good news will come with oppression and struggles, and this message is also for us who are speaking the tidings, the good news. So Messiah's own words, Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Do we all know what happened to Messiah in the first century? And how he died and how they, 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 peer, they pulled his beard and they ripped it from his face. And the, and the floggings and the torture and the torment that he spent the last hour of his life, the last 24 hours of his life. Matthew 10, 16 to 23. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. But you, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, 
For it shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speaks, but the spirit of your father which speaks in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man have come. So what is our job? We are to flee from the city, not fight back. So we're going to go into a couple of details of how this is also connected and be able to understand the words of Messiah in chapter 10. So not everyone wants to hear the message of salvation. Is that true? Absolutely. Why? Because the, the, the truth of salvation comes with strings attached. And they don't want the strings that come with it. So he comforts his people, but his people do not want the comfort in his way. They want it in their way. They don't want the strings that come attached. So salvation in the heavenly realms appears dreadful, violent, dangerous in the earthly realm. Because as we are proclaiming the good news, they're preparing the news for me. So this is how we see on this realm why the Father says those who endure to the end will be saved because my goal and my only intention is to proclaim the truth throughout the nations, throughout the globe, the four corners of the earth. So which is why he reminds us, who are you that you should fear man and he shall die and he is as grass. So do not fear the judgment of men. Do not fear the one who will kill your body, but fear the one who will destroy your body and your soul in fire. That is our job, is to fear him. Fulfill your call. You're here for a short season. Your job is to be that remnant or that little part in the entire picture. To fulfill your little role in the wholeness that he has established from the beginning until the end. Your ripple is important and is necessary. Just fulfill your ripple. And God will bring that next person to continue it moving until he returns. But if you don't do your ripple, he, you're not going to be saved. Your reward is the inheritance to come. Your job is to walk in obedience, walk in righteousness, speak the words that are proclaimed, speak life to those around you, walk as an example, be that wise individual that desires to draw people near to you, not push them away from you, and be able to be the one to bring life to them. So that your ripple will continue to the next seed who you drew near, who you brought salvation to, and now they're equipped and ready and prepared to bring it to the next generation. Uh, so, we need to be wise and harmless. Wise. Do not go out looking for a fight. It'll come to you. When the Spirit moves in you, do not, be, do not fear men and do not suppress the Spirit. Speak what is, what is moved to speak within yourself. Because that is the Holy Spirit who is speaking. Do not correct when it is a scornful and, and not wanted, but the Spirit will lead you. In other words, do not go correct someone who's walking in the wrong path, but their, their ego or their personality or their character does not want that correction. You do not offer it freely. They have to work for it, meaning they want to sit at your feet and receive the goodness that you have. They want to sit at your feet and hear the words of wisdom that are coming from you, as opposed to us forcing it upon others. It is where we would be ending up pushing it away instead of drawing them near to us. And our job is to draw them near so we can draw them near to the Father. So be your fruits 
that will that they will know you. Let it be your fruits that they will know you by. Your you are walking as an example, so your fruits will show, and that's what's going to be drawing them near to you. Harmless. Speak in kindness and gentleness. Speak in love and be like a sheep being led to the slaughter. It is very important that we understand that concept, harmless. It is, we have to be that sheep, just like he did. The time to fight is not yet. It's not time to pick up arms and slaughter those around us. It is time to give them life. It is time to give them shalom. It is literally time to, to give them the other cheek. Because the time of fighting is when Messiah says, I'm done. I'm coming and I'm destroying. But that's not the time. So wise, do not raise the sword. Yeshua's disciples try to defend him. Everybody should know this story, Matthew 26. And look, one of those with Yeshua put out his hand and drew his sword, and striking the servant of the high priest, he cut off his ear. Then Yeshua said to him, Return your sword to its place, for all who take the sword shall die by the sword. We know that that was Peter. But I say to you, do not resist the wicked, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, Turn to him the other cheek. What's the point of that? In this kingdom today, we have to show submissiveness to the authority that is upon this earth. And if that means submissiveness to lead to death, because we are not going to forsake the Torah, because we're not going to forsake Sabbath, we're not going to forsake covenant, then let it be. Let it be that it drives me to my death, because at the end, I will never forsake my God and my King or the nation of Israel but I will go to my death because I refuse to give and bow down to the authority. Does that mean that I have to rise and be a Barkova? No. Does that mean I need to come against Trump because he is against everything I believe? No. Does that mean that I have to rise against the city of Sholo because they have ordinances that I don't agree with? No. Does that mean that because the guy walking down the street is giving me the crooked eye because I believe in this faith, that I'm going to knock him in the right face, in his, in his right cheek, because he, I don't like the way he looked at me. Absolutely not. We do not need to defend ourselves and our walk. We need to simply defend the word of truth. And, and if they receive it in love or they don't receive it in love, we're still going to give it to them in love and correct them in, with simplicity, correct them with kindness, correct them without emotions, because emotions will destroy us, women destroy us we got to put them in check but we still need to have been driven by the spirit we still need to have passion those things are not being rejected we just need to make sure that when we are loving people we're loving our neighbor or we're loving the enemy we're doing it in righteousness and we are not forsaking the word for to to deliver that word of righteousness so the great bible examples of this concept Acts 6 7 through 10 and we're going to jump through 50, uh, chapter 7, 54 to 60. This is the story of Stephen. Instead of going through the entire story of Stephen, I just put the most important parts. The word of Elohim spread, and the number of taught ones increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the belief. And Stephanos, filled with belief and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. But some of those of the so-called congregation of the freed men the Syrians, the Alexandrians, and those from Kilikia and Asia rose up disputing with Stephanos, but they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And hearing this, they were cut to the hearts and gnashed, at his, uh, gnashed his teeth at him, and he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, looked steadily into the heavens and saw the esteem of Elohim 
Yeshua standing at the right hand of Elohim and he said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of Adam standing at the right hand of Elohim. And crying out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and rushed upon him with one mind and threw him out of the city and stoned him. So I just skipped his entire speech. This is from when he started and was moved by the wisdom. He spoke to them and after they heard what he said, they were broken. They were cut. They were convicted. But they did not like the words that were spoken. So they went and did, and, and did what they did. They threw him out of the city and stoned him. Now this is where the loving them with righteousness comes into play. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Shaul. And they were stoning Stephanos as he was calling and saying, Master Yeshua, receive my spirit. And kneeling down, he cried out with a loud voice, Master, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, he fell asleep, died. How many of us can go against our enemies and those who are torturing us, who are ripping our nails, who are pulling our hair, who are breaking our bones, who are, are decapitating our, finger, our fingers, and are sitting here, are going to sit here and say, Blessed is he, and please do not hold this sin against them. There are many, many who have died for this faith, this specific faith, this truth. And have done, they have done much worse than what they have done to Stephanos. And the only thing that can come out of their mouth is do not let this sin come against them. That is having that separating yourself, dying to your flesh, dying to yourself, and being able to die for your conviction and still understand that it is not them who is being moved. It is the, the kingdom of Hasatan who is moving these men, but because they still have until their last breath to come to the truth and come to the realization that they were wrong, that that sin will not be coming against them, but they have until that last moment to repent of their sins. Did not Apostle Paul do so? And if every single Christian held that against Paul, do you think he would have had the strength to move on knowing all of the believers he had crucified, killed, destroyed because of this truth that he finally came to. That is what our heart needs to be. We have to forgive and let go and give them that. We have to hold this heart to be able to not hold that sin against them. So our example to live by, live by Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent but he did not open his mouth. This is the concept we need to understand what that means. Let that be an embodiment of us. How, it, how can we love our neighbor? How can we love our enemies much more if we do not have this spirit upon us? So what's the point of all this? In this dying earth, this kingdom, his people will always suffer in the hands of the oppressors. Do not think that that will not happen to you one day. If you live this life and you don't suffer those things, Blessed be his name. That does not mean that you didn't do your job. That just simply means that that was not the allotment that God had for you. Bless his name. But that means that we still have oppressors on this earth. He will save us in the appointed time. And we will seek, we will seek for that salvation. We will look to the skies for his return. But we will walk in the righteousness that he has us with the heart of love that he requires of his people. And we speak the words of salvation and remind his people about their creator and the good news. And that is your half talk. Our New Testament portion today was ripe, very, very rich with our Torah connections today. And I had to pick and choose. 
So, I picked with the idea, and actually, actually maybe the Lord picked this, because I was, I was leaning towards one thing, and all of a sudden I found a thread, and I began to follow that thread. So we're going to talk about giving life. Okay, Moshe was sent to the children of Israel. And we read in, in Acts chapter 7, verses 35 and 36, this is, the Moshe, this is Moshe, whom they had refused, saying, Who made you a judge and a ruler? This one Elohim sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the messenger who appeared to him in the bush. And he did end up becoming not just a ruler, but a judge among them, right? He said, You are to judge rightly, and the, the ones that are too hard for you, you are to bring to me. Okay? So this one led them out after he had done wonders and signs in the land of Mitzrayim, in Egypt and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. We also read in Exodus 3.10, confirming that Moshe was sent to the children of Israel, and now come, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, out of Mitzrayim. So Hashem, we've got two, two witnesses here showing that Moshe was sent, actually three if you think about it, Deuteronomy, Acts, and, and Exodus. So we've got three witnesses that say that Moshe was sent by Hashem to the children of Israel. Okay? It's important to remember that he was sent. Moshe also gave life. This is he who was in the assembly in the wilderness with, with the messenger who spoke with him on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the living, the living words to give us. Living words. What are those living words? Well, the Aramaic English New Testament, written by uh, Andrew Gabriel Roth, says the Torah is the living words of Yehovah re received by Moshe. And we all understand that, right? It's good to have that second with that outside witness that, that's able to tell us that, to confirm it, okay? So I want, I want you to keep that in mind. The Torah are the living words of Hashem. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 27 says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. We've already read this. We read this a couple weeks, few weeks ago. The blessing when you obey the commands of Hashem, your Elohim, which I command you today. We're going to take a look here in just a minute at that word setting. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20, which we will read in a few coming months. I have called the heavens and the earth witness, as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So we're seeing here that life and death are connected to the blessing and the curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed, to love Hashem your Elohim, to obey His voice, and to cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days. To dwell in the land which Hashem swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, to give them. So we're seeing here that blessing is tied to life. Life is tied to Hashem and obedience to His word and that He is the length of our days. He is the one who will cause us to live to a ripe old age, just as Moshe did. Deuteronomy 31.9 says, And Moshe wrote this Torah and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem and to all the elders of Israel. Now let's take a look at what those words setting and gave. From the word, it's, it's from uh, uh, Strong's H5414, Natan. We have a Natan in our assembly, don't we? It's a primitive root, to give. And that's the basic of it. But I want you to notice those things that I've highlighted. It is to deliver, to fasten, to perform, to restore, or to set forth. I like this word, fasten. He is fastening them to the Torah so that they hold tight to it. In the Mishnah 7b, great is Torah, for it gives life to its doers in this world and in the next world, as it is written, for they, the teachings of the Torah, give life to those who find them and healing to all flesh. 
Proverbs also says, healing will it be for your flesh and marrow for your bones. It is what provides life. We now understand through science that it is our marrow, the bone marrow within us, that causes us to give, have new blood. Right? And when, when our marrow isn't working, when we have cancer in our bones, then we end up with leukemia, a type of leukemia. That ends up, it's a cancer and it ends up causing death. Except that the word says that he is that life-giving marrow. His words are what's going to give us the life that we need. There we go. Proverbs also says, and we read this every Shabbat, don't we? It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are fortunate. That is Etz Chaim. It is the tree of life. Let's take a look at that word support. It is H8551. It is the word tamak. It means to take, uphold, maintain, retain, or stay up. It is also to follow close. Okay, so Etz Chaim. These words are what we want to follow so closely to so that we have life, that we don't let go of it. We hold so fast that we can't follow any closer. It also says in Proverbs, For in me, the Torah, will you lengthen days and years of life will be added to you. We're going to get to it, but there's also a very personal me, and we know him. We're going to talk about him just in just a moment. It also says, Length of days in, in, in its right hand, in its left, are wealth and honor. We've all heard the proverb that says, don't let your left hand or your right hand know what your left hand is doing and vice versa. Right? One does the evil deeds and the other does the good deeds. It is also written, for length of days, years of life, and peace, they will be, the Torah's teaching, they will be increased for you. That's what's going to cause you to grow. And as we've already read, it's what's going to be our life. It's what's going to be the end of our days, the, the, the length of our days, rather. Now, Moshe also said in this particular Brit Hadashah and in our Torah portion today that Hashem will raise up for you a prophet like unto me. This is the Moshe who said to the children of Israel, Hashem your Elohim shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Him you shall hear. It's interesting because he's not saying him you might listen to. It's saying you're going to listen to him. And Why? Because he's going to be king. But let's take a look at that word raise. I think we all know this word. It's the word kum. It means arise, confirm, establish, raise, ordain. Kumi ori. Arise and shine. Right? Genesis 17.7 says, And I shall establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be Elohim to you and to your seed after you. Hashem here is speaking to Abraham at the time that he is changing his name from Avram to Abraham and he is entering into covenant with him the covenant of circumcision and yet he's saying I'm going to establish that root word is the word kum I'm going to raise up with you my covenant okay in Numbers 24 15 through 17 we read uh, uh, this, is, this is the story of Balaam and Balaam is, is about to, to, to give the proverb over the people okay He's already looked upon the people and he's already said, Oh, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob. But now here's the proverb. And he took up this proverb, the saying of Balaam, son of Beor, and the saying of the man whose eyes are open, the saying of him who hears the words of El and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes open wide. It's interesting that it says this because he was a false prophet. 
but it's speaking the truth because he did hear the words of El. He, his eyes were open, but he wasn't. But he was a prophet for hire, and we heard about bribery today in our tour portion, didn't we? He was being bribed, in essence. Unfortunately, or fortunately for the, the children of Israel, Hashem would not permit that bribery to blind his eyes. I see him, but not now. I observe him, but not near. A star shall, shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and shall destroy all the sons of Shet. You know what a scepter is? A couple years ago when we were doing Purim, I got to be the king, and I got to hold a scepter. It's just a curtain rod, but it had a ball on the end. It was my scepter, right? It, it identified me as the king. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Our king is rising. We are bringing forth his kingdom here on earth so that he can return and bring his scepter. John chapter 14, verse, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 6, verse 14. Then the men, having seen the sign that Yeshua did, said, this is truly the prophet who is coming into the world. Now we're beginning to find out that the prophet was Yeshua himself. John 5, 40, uh, 46 through 47 says, For if you believed in Moshe, you would have believed in me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how shall you believe my words? In a minute, we're going we're gonna to read in here something else that the Mishnah says. The, the sages, uh, I'm sorry, it, it's what you, Yeshua says to, uh, to the, the, the Pharisees of the time. He says, he says, you search the scriptures for eternal life. But I'm the one that provides the eternal life, because Moshe wrote about me. If you had your eyes open, you would see that I'm there. The Aramaic English New Testament, once again, we covered that the Torah is the living words of Yehovah, but the spirit of Yeshua, Mashiach, is the living word. Therefore, if then, right? Therefore, the word, the spirit that is in Mashiach is the same word of Yehovah that gave Torah to Moshe and who has come to write Torah upon our hearts. Okay? So, Yeshua brings life also. He is also our life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Elohim, and the Word was Elohim. He was in the beginning with Elohim. All came to be through Him, and without Him, not even one came to be that came to be. In other words, there's not a single thing in all of creation that happened to come into existence without Him. Everything that was made in creation was made through Yeshua, our Messiah. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life in Torah. Torah is light. He is the light. He is Torah. He is life. Psalm 139, 23-24 says, Search me, O El, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if an idolatrous way is in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, what is the way everlasting? Yeshua is the way everlasting. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. But I'm also the life. And I'm truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Yeshua says, As Moshe lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man has to be lifted up, so that whoever is believing in him should not perish but possess everlasting life. 
That serpent that was raised up gave them life, even though they were about to die because they had been bitten by the, the serpents, the fiery serpents in the wilderness. Well, Yeshua is also needing to be lifted up that all of those who would look upon him and believe in him, and not just, you know, oh, I believe he existed. No. Believing by our actions because we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's not just, oh yeah, I believe. Go about my life. There are those who say, yes, he existed. There are those who will contend that he existed, but there are those who say, yeah, he, I at one point said, yeah, he probably existed. He's not for me. It's okay. And he let me, right? He let me go astray as long as I needed to because he knew that I would return. And here I am, blessed be his name. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How much more has your life changed since you came to him? Since you looked upon him and his cross? That he would give you that life abundantly. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And we know this, because if only a remnant shall be saved, only a remnant is going to be retained for him, then that means all of the masses of people in this world are going to attempt to follow the way that is broad and enter in through the wide gate. Because the gate is narrow and the way is hard-pressed, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. If anyone ever comes to you and say to say that his way is not hard, well, I'm going to contend right here. He says, it is hard-pressed, which leads to life. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to make it, that we can't persevere, but it is difficult. There is great tribulation. But I'd say to you that there is great tribulation without him greater tribulation, because in the end you won't have the eternal life. And I would much rather go through that tribulation than to be without the eternal life. Acts 7, 59 and 60, we end with, they were all stoning Stephanos as he was calling and saying, Master Yeshua, receive my spirit. And kneeling down, he cried out with a loud voice, Master, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. It's interesting. It does say that he fell asleep. But Yeshua also said that if you remain in me my, and, and, and guard my word, you may never see death at all. There is a possibility that Stephanos didn't see his death. Yes, his body died. His body couldn't retain him anymore and the Lord took him out of it. But do you think Stephen saw his death? I think not. I think Stephen was taken out of that body long before it died before it fell asleep. Matthew 10.39 He who has found his life shall lose it, and he that has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Stephen found his life. He lost it. It was probably a very short life. When I read that scripture, I get the feeling that Stephen was probably in his 20s or 30s. It's awfully young to die. But he died a martyr. The very first martyr for the kingdom that Yeshua brought. I think I'd die for my king. Moshe delivered the Torah in which Yeshua was prophesied in which life can be found. 
Why can life be found in it? Well, number one, he says, because I, I'm setting before you today life and death. Choose life. Choose the blessing. But also because Yeshua is within the Torah. He has prophesied repeatedly. He says, I am the Aleph and the Tav. If he's the Aleph and the Tav, and the, and the Aleph and the Tav are replete throughout the Torah, then he is all over it. But not just because of that, but because that spirit that is Torah is Yeshua himself. Yeshua is the prophet like Moshe, raised up from his brothers and brought life as the living Torah. He is the one that showed us how to live it out. He is our example. And as Richard talked about today, he is the king who showed us how to do it. And he's the only one that could fully show us and to show us that it truly is possible. It is absolutely possible to live this life, this life full of life. Because each and every day we are proclaiming his goodness and his grace and his love and we're calling for repentance. That's your New Testament. Yeah.